0: you're listening to politics weekly to uh be big underdogs uh in the race uh for the uh, the presidency one of them is uh, joining me today we can't survive all those systems what's going to happen if you legalize it completely politics weekly is a podcast on politics news and principles Welcome back to Politics Weekly. Merry Christmas. This is our uh, Christmas uh, episode this week. And joining us again, we have a returning guest. Her name is Emily Conrad. She's the author of the book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. Emily, thank you for joining me again.
1: Well, thanks so much for asking me back.
0: Um, so, uh, in your book, The Faithless, you do talk uh, a lot about uh, some of the faithless electors from the 2016 election, why they chose not to vote with uh, their uh, w- with the candidate that their state went with. Um, the reason I wanted to bring you back on is uh, because uh, this week, obviously, uh, the Electoral College met. Uh, The uh, results were certified for uh, for Joe Biden. Um, We didn't see anybody break. We didn't see any faithless electors this time uh, as compared to four years ago when we saw the most faithless electors of any election uh, in United States history. Why do you think that people didn't break uh, this time and why they did last time?
1: Well, I think that there are there, there kind of been two reasons that I've been thinking about. And the first is that 2016, you had very, uh, you know, tightly and highly contested primary races. So, for example, every single Democratic elector um, who ended up voting faithlessly were uh, originally uh, Bernie Sanders supporters. And um, on the Republican side, um, the ones who were who also voted faithlessly may not have been uh, Trump, uh, may have never jumped on board the Trump train. Um, You know, in my book, I interviewed two Republican electors who actually ended up stepping down after saying that they were going to vote faithlessly um, after pressure from their political party and from the political establishment. Um, but uh, what a lot of people didn't realize is that these uh, many of these electors were selected as electors before it was clear who the um, who the party's nominee for president was going to be. So, I mean, you had uh, some Texas electors that still thought that, uh, you know, Ted Cruz had a chance and then all of a sudden they are Donald Trump electors, may not have been so happy about that. And then you also saw that, especially on the Democratic side as well, very strong Berniecrats um, who found themselves all of a sudden as Clinton electors. So that's the first reason. Um, when I think by the, the time that the electors were chosen this time around, it was clear who they were being chosen to elect for president. Um, and so there was a difference there. Um, and another reason that I've been considering um, is that because this election was so I said that um, because this election was really very much um, it was it was full of a lot of debates and a lot of hyper partisanship um, in 2020. And I, as I talked to 2020 electors, it was clear that they were fearing the other side greatly so i think that after the general election day the electors uh, rallied behind their candidates out of fear for the other side
0: um now you talk a little bit about uh, you know people last time around who thought that ted cruz had a chance and then they jumped all of a sudden they were trump electors and vice versa bernie electors who who, who or who thought they were bernie electors but became found themselves in the shoes of clinton electors um, this election uh, on the Democratic side, especially, uh, you know, we saw plenty of people who thought they were Warren electors or Sanders electors, uh, or Buttigieg electors, uh, who all of a sudden uh found themselves as Biden electors. Um, why do you think that they, uh, they, they? Jumped on board so easily. Do you think that it was because of the animosity, as you mentioned, towards the other side?
1: I would venture to say that that's why. That well, I mean, well, first of all, I mean, we very rarely have faithless electors, um, which is one of the reasons I was so interested in studying why we had so many in twenty sixteen. Um, so. Um, it's interesting that it's also equally interesting that the um that that trend did not continue into twenty twenty
0: anyways you were you were talking a little bit about uh, about that
1: yeah, so so basically, um you know first of all that uh, faithless electors are um, they're they're not common, especially so many in one uh, presidential election cycle, which made twenty sixteen so interesting. And I think it's quite uh, noteworthy that this trend didn't continue until 2020. At the same time, with the hyper partisanship, it certainly makes sense. And as I talked to 2020 electors, many of them, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, really shared their fear of the other side. And I think that was certainly an, an underlying motivation and something that was always clearly on people's minds.
0: Do you think that, you know, because there, a lot of people say we live in hyper-partisan times, do you think that uh, us living in hyper-partisan times basically means that faithless electors are dead, at least for the time being, and that we won't see, like, more faithless electors in 2024 or 2028—
1: i it, that's a very interesting question, and I think that that really depends on the trajectories of um of the parties themselves um so for example um you know one of the reasons oh I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just um you might if we, if we start over on that sure, go I just, ahead. I, go I, ahead. my um I didn't turn off my phone
0: no worries <laughs>
1: so, My my ringtone tone. <laughs> Um, So as we look ahead, um, I do think that we do live in an era of hyper partisanship where many where people of strong political opinions are often not hearing the political opinions of the other side. I think that one of the biggest challenges moving forward is that the party apparatuses are having a difficult time navigating in an era of hyper partisanship um, they have to um, they have to maintain the, uh, their bases naturally at the same time they have to work at getting the moderate voters um, who are turned off by hyper partisanship and this is going to be a challenge moving forward and i think that if faithless electors are to um are to arise coming forward it's, it will likely be because of their dissatisfaction with their own party um and their the feeling that they need to get a message out to their own party
0: um so in your book you talk uh a little bit about some of the people you talk to uh that did not vote uh, with their party, uh, in terms of their candidate or didn't vote with the state in terms of, uh, who they elected. Um, what were some of the interests? I, I know I kind of asked you this before, but just for those who are, are, uh, listening to this podcast for the first time, what were some of the, uh, experiences you kind of got from those people that you found interesting?
1: Well, I, um, being a young person myself, I was really drawn to the two millennial voices that arose. Um, So there were two uh, Hispanic millennials who were electors, one out of Colorado and one out of Washington State. And I was really interested in how they became electors to start with, and then also what would prompt them to vote faithlessly. Um, Because oftentimes we think of the Electoral College as something that would probably be out of reach for a community college student, for example, or an Uber driver. But in 2016, it certainly was not out of reach. And as I've researched the Electoral College, you actually see quite a few young people. Uh, participating as electors, and so I was very interested in in how that happened and also the questions that they are bringing up about the electoral college because really um, as we move forward in in presidential politics, what the younger generations have to say about the electoral college will really determine you know the the fate the our future of uh, political elections. So I was very interested in that. Um basically both of them questioned why do we even have electors at all if it's just nothing but a ceremonial thing and I think that that is a very important question that that we should be asking. Um what is the purpose of the electoral college and Besides just the purpose of it, why actually have electors in the Electoral College if, if what they're to do is just a ceremonial, you know, oh, we have chosen this individual. Um, it's just so I, I think that as um, that it's very important for, for younger people to understand the mechanics of the Electoral College so that we can think of what we want it to look like in the future or well. in, in many cases, if we even want it. And if we don't want it, what sort of alternative we would
0: want? Now, I remember in 2016, one uh, faithless elector cast their ballot for Faith Spotted Eagle, and she became the uh, first Native American person to receive an electoral vote. Um, What was the thinking behind that, behind casting a vote uh, based on interviewing uh, the electors?
1: Yes, the vote for Faith Spotted Eagle was cast by an elector out of Washington State uh, named Robert Satayakum. He uh, attended the DNC in Philadelphia as a uh, as a Sanders delegate and became very disenchanted and disillusioned with party politics at that point in time. He was one of those that was protesting outside in the media tent saying, oh, um, Bernie hasn't gotten his, uh, his fair shot. He returned to Washington state and became very active in, um, in, the, in several indigenous issues, including uh, he, went, he and his family went to Standing Rock to protest the, the Keystone Pipeline. Um, While he was there, he met uh, Faith Spotted Eagle and and talked with her quite a bit, and knowing that he was an elector, he began to think to himself, if I put forth a leader, um, or if I'm going to say who I would like to be president, I wanted to be a leader like Faith Spotted Eagle. So that is exactly why he chose her, and he, of course, was a a Native American uh, peel-up activist. so it, it's uh, it's an interesting story, because if you just look at that one single vote for Faith Spotted Eagle, you might think, how did this even happen? But the backstory is actually it, it makes sense, but it also brings up bigger questions. Um, is it OK for an elector to vote uh, how they feel rather than according to their state's popular vote? And now that we are having more and more. Um, Binding elector laws. I think that this is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Uh, all right. So let's move on to uh, some of the stories. Uh, so right now, um, uh, right now, uh, Mike Pence, Vice President of the United States, uh, recently received the vaccine, the COVID nineteen vaccine, which is currently uh, being rolled out from Pfizer and moderna uh president-elect joe biden also uh took the vaccine uh it is uh being hoped now um that the vaccine by many that the vaccine will be rolled out soon uh and that hopefully uh, americans can return to a sense of normalcy after the covid19 pandemic uh however right now um there is uh some controversy uh over uh the number of doses uh of uh the vaccine being slashed in a number of states by the Trump administration. This has led to a number of states complaining uh about this. Uh what are your thoughts on this?
1: Well, uh... When it comes to the vaccine, I mean, I'm I'm very um, grateful for all of the researchers and the people really working overtime to make such a vaccine possible, as well as everybody who were willing to go through clinical trials. And I think that that mobilization that we've had in the United States to get this far so quickly is uh, commendable. And so, you know, I you know i'm so much wanting the end of this that of course i'm going to always focus on the positive rather than the negative um that being said if i had gotten the you know the first dose of the vaccine and i can't get that second shot i'd be very upset right now um and i hope that um that these sorts of issues can be resolved as quickly as possible because this is great news going into into christmas and um I just hope that, you know, that that we can try to get past this as quickly as
0: we can. All right. Well, let's move on to the next story. Uh, so Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson uh, has recently come under fire from many critics as he recently blocked a uh, covid relief bill. Uh, which would have helped pay off mortgages for families, that was introduced by a fellow Republican senator. The bill, which was introduced by Republican Missouri Senator Josh Hawley, uh, was blocked by Johnson um, as Johnson cited the deficit and fiscal conservatism. Uh, Johnson said in a speech that he would rather the economy be opened back up uh, then have uh the uh uh then have money be sent out uh immediately um, what this has led to him being uh bashed uh or or received some uh mixed uh feelings from from both sides many people uh, who are fiscally conservative have been praising Johnson for this decision. Uh, however, many others have bashed him. Uh, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders has accused uh, Johnson of hypocrisy, uh, as Johnson has uh, citing Johnson's uh, vote in other spending bills. Um, but uh, so this has led to some mixed feelings from both sides. What are your thoughts uh, on uh, the controversy involving this?
1: Well, I think that everybody's opinion is uh is is very much uh shaped by their personal experience um during this pandemic. And uh every state has a different uh has a different reality by which they have been operating under this pandemic. Um for me out of South Carolina, um it of course it, everything reopened early and you know out of personal experience i have a lot i know of a lot of people who even started businesses during COVID. um so it's a so it's a very different uh, every i think that oftentimes what ends up happening because of different state mandates and different realities that exist in different states some states say Oh, well, or people in certain states say, oh, well, this is what should be done. And this is what has worked for us. And then, of course, then what you end up having is uh, is a major debate of how we should handle this nationwide Um, and 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 nationally, whenever, you know, whenever certain areas such as the area that I'm that I'm from and that I'm living in has reopened and, you know, business, while it has certainly been hit very, very hard. People are are really working hard at trying to to build up businesses, start new businesses, that sort of thing, perhaps prematurely, arguably. But um, so looking at moving forward, um, everybody will have there will be many people whose uh, lives have been impacted by covid. And who will be suffering because of COVID? Um, the good thing is, is that I think the end is near, and we're going to be getting past it as quickly as possible. At the same time, we do need to be having this this dialogue of what are the policies that we could can put in place to. Help Americans get back on their feet because this has been unprecedented and there will be some level uh, there needs to be some measures enacted to ensure that people can move forward in a productive way. Um, but you know whenever you have some states that are completely shut down and you have other states that are that are open and you know everything in between, it's very difficult to come up with a nationwide solution, particularly I think
0: at this stage. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, move on to the next story. So, uh, obviously, the rate the heat is up in the two Georgia Senate races, uh, one uh, in the regular uh, election where uh, incumbent David Perdue, the Republican, is hoping uh, to win uh, a second full term in the United States Senate, and the other uh, where uh, Kelly Loeffler, uh, the uh the interim senator who took over for Johnny Isaacson following his um his resignation uh is hoping to uh to uh keep her seat uh right now um uh Mr. Perdue will be going up against Democrat John Ossoff and Loeffler is going up against Democrat Raphael. Warnock. Uh, right now, those uh, races are very heated, and they will determine control of the Senate. If Republicans win one or both of the seats, they become, uh, they will retain their Senate majority. Um, if Democrats win both of the seats, however, that would result in the Senate uh, composition being a 50-50 tie, which would give Democrats a majority since Kamala Harris is the uh, vice president-elect. That would make her the president of the Senate, which means that Chuck Schumer would become the Senate majority leader for at least the next two years. Right now um, in Georgia, there are two uh, upcoming uh, Senate races, uh, runoff elections on January 5th that will determine control of the Senate. Both of those those seats are being defended by Republicans right now. Uh, In the regular Georgia election, uh, incumbent Republican David Perdue is hoping to fend off challenge from John Ossoff, the Democrat, and win a second term. Uh, And in the other Georgia race, uh, uh, remember this was a special election, Um, which was created after the resignation uh, of Johnny Isakson. He was replaced by Kelly Loeffler. Uh, Kelly Loeffler is hoping to defend uh, her seat against Democratic challenger Raphael Warnock. Um, These two races are very important because they will determine control of the United States Senate. If Republicans win one or both of the seats— uh they will remain the senate in the senate majority because that will get them 251 seats however if democrats win both of the seats that will uh put the senate uh at 50-50 uh which would uh which with Kamala Harris as vice president would uh make Chuck Schumer the senate majority leader uh and would technically give democrats uh the senate the house and the presidency Um, So a lot of stakes here. Right now, um, there has been some polling coming out from Gallup. Um, This is significant because uh, while polls were generally wrong uh, during the 2020 uh, election, or in many cases they were wrong, um, polls were uh, more accurate uh, in Georgia where they showed Biden narrowly leading uh, by about 0.3%. Ultimately, Joe Biden won the state by around a similar margin. Um, so uh, right now, that's, that's what the polls have been uh, indicating. Uh, wh- what are your thoughts on—right um, uh, now, the polls are showing that uh, David Perdue has about a three-point lead over John Ossoff in the general, the regular Georgia election— And they're showing that uh, Kelly Loeffler has a one-point lead over Raphael Warnock in the special election. What are your thoughts uh, on uh, polls indicating that?
1: Well, I think that that we really do need to start rethinking our, our, our polling mechanisms at some point. Because now that we've moved into a social media and a digital age... Our polling, um, our polling systems have shown themselves time and time again to be remarkably inaccurate, I think, at reaching out to the people that they need to reach out to. Um, people, of course, likely voters, but then, of course, people who show up to vote but may, may be more difficult to, to reach. Um, so I, I think that, the, you know, we, we, um, I think that polling companies, uh, and I think that politicians, of course, because they're, of course, they're the ones really contacting this out and, you know, and, and, uh, research researchers as well. I mean, we need to really start rethinking how do we do this in an era of, of, in a digital era. Um, so, You know, without being on the ground, it's I think it's actually very difficult to to be able to tell. Um, I think that, you know, very much with all the attention shown in in Georgia right now, the the polls may indeed be accurate. But just going looking ahead to 2024, we need to be rethinking how polls are, are done.
0: Uh, all right uh well uh let's uh move on to the next story uh so uh, right now uh California congressman uh, and previous twenty twenty presidential candidate Eric Swalwell has been coming under fire uh for uh allegations that he slept with a suspected chinese spy um the um uh, uh, reportedly, uh, the, uh, the one person in question, uh, was named Fang Fang, otherwise known as Christine Fang. Um, she, uh, entered the U.S. as a college student in 2011, um, and worked for, uh, a number of politicians, uh, one of which, uh, was, uh, was, um, uh, was Eric's was uh, California Congressman Eric Swalwell as well as Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, uh, just to name a few people uh, in the area. It turns out that Fang was actually um, was actually working uh, to try and gain Intel uh, from the United States. However, she worked very closely uh, with um, uh, with Eric Swalwell, um, and, uh, allegedly, apparently, uh, it has been, uh, confirmed that she did have sex with a number of, uh, U.S. officials, uh, there was an Ohio mayor who she had sex with, uh, in a car, uh, according to FBI electronic surveillance, um, this was according to an intelligence, uh, committee man, um, Uh, right now there are allegations, uh, that, uh, that, um, Swalwell at some point, um, had, uh, had sex with Eric Swalwell. Um, this has led to, uh, allegations, um, uh, that, uh, that, uh, this has led to calls from a number of people, uh, for, uh, Swalwell, Uh, to be removed from the intel committee uh, over this scandal. Um, According to some uh, sources, uh, Fang also uh, placed uh, an intern into uh, Swalwell's office uh, and uh, also apparently raised funds for his 2014 re-election bid. Uh, So what are your thoughts on the allegations uh, against... Uh, Eric Swalwell uh, right now
1: well I mean and this is really um, this is of course what uh, I think the needs to be addressed is is how much he was aware and how much he was unaware um, if he was aware of course then and if he was aware of such situ- of a situation then of course we would you know Calls to resign would be understandable, but just based off of uh, you know my things I've heard and things I've experienced, of course, with a, a lot of it, China experience, I. I've, uh, I've lived there for for five years. Um, a lot of these sorts of things are often caught, they often catch people by surprise. Um, and they are genuinely unaware um, that this is happening. Um, I think that um, and it's uh, and it's a very difficult line to tread, I think, in um, in in the modern um, in, especially in in a modern world. To of course um, maintain openness and enthusiasm to to um, to engage with people of different cultures, and then of course maintain maintain a certain level of vigilance. Um, and this is something, of course, that I think that American political figures as well as American academics need to be thinking about, um, because. Um, the, the system does have, um, this is not the first time that, that such a thing has happened. Um, and this is not, and it will certainly not be the last. Um, so complicity, uh, complicity, um, of course needs to be determined, but I think that we need to be thinking for more long lasting solutions, um, about how to maintain, how to ensure that um, that politicians are not um, uh, don't do not fall prey to these sorts of things uh, again. Which, of course, I know is a little bit naive for me to say. At the same time, it's important that we have this level of awareness and that we're discussing this on a national stage.
0: Uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, a number of uh, a number of uh... Biden cabinet uh, uh, nominees were uh, announced this week. Uh, a few of them include uh, Deb Holland. Deb Holland is a current uh, is a current um, congresswoman from New Mexico. Uh, she is a Native American Congresswoman. Uh, Joe Biden has announced that she will be his nominee for Secretary of the Interior. He also announced that Pete Buttigieg, former South Bend, Indiana mayor, uh and candidate for president in 2020, will be his nominee for Transportation Secretary and that Michael Regan will be his EPA uh Secretary nominee. Uh Regan if confirmed will be the first black uh man to uh head the EPA. Uh, right now the search is on, uh, as, uh, as we speak currently, uh, for, uh, the attorney general position right now. Um, as we currently speak, um, uh, some of the, uh, some of the candidates, uh, for, uh, for the position, Uh, include uh, now uh, uh, ongoing Senator Doug Jones from Alabama. Uh, Jones, although he is currently the senator, uh, lost his reelection bid in November uh, and will be leaving uh, the position of senator uh, on January 3rd, which will uh, make him open uh, to be the attorney general. Some reports have suggested that Jones is the front runner for the position. Uh, Merrick Garland, if you'll remember, he was Barack Obama's nominee for Supreme Court uh, in 2016 uh, following the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. Um, some reports suggest that Biden would like him to be Attorney General. Some other reports suggest that Sally Yates, the former Attorney General, could be coming back to become Biden's Attorney General. Um, yates uh has been friendly with Democrats and even got a speaking spot at the Democratic National Convention this year. Um, some have suggested uh that Deval Patrick, the former Massachusetts governor and twenty twenty presidential candidate, could be throwing uh could be uh on the uh the list of people who could be attorney general and some have suggested that new york Governor andrew cuomo who's been gaining A lot of uh, attention uh, for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has uh, received uh, both immense praise and immense controversy, uh, depending uh, on who you talk to. Um, However, uh, many of the the calls to uh, nominate Cuomo have been tampered by recent news uh, of sexual harassment allegations uh, against the governor. Um. So right now, those are some of the people uh, that are uh, being uh, talked about. What are your thoughts on some of the nominees that Biden has announced uh, for his cabinet?
1: Well, it, it's clear that that he is uh, that he is trying to create a very um, diverse cabinet and trying to pioneer a lot of firsts in his cabinet. Which, um, which I, um, you know, I, I it's always better, It's always great to be the first at something, right? So I, 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 um, I always commend people who are the first to do something. Um, so it's clear that that's what he is moving forward. I think that what a lot of the, the, I think the biggest question moving forward for a lot of people who are wondering what a Biden administration is going to look like is how is he going to navigate the first that he is trying to pioneer. With no, and with just uh, the fact that he's been in politics for so long, um, you know, we can't necessarily uh, expect a new, um, a new approach to politics um, out of Joe Biden, since uh, you know he's he's clearly a part of the establishment. Um, I think that it is it's a good sign that he's trying to do that it's It's a sign that he's not wanting to go back to politics as normal um in a post trump era, but at the same time um you know how how sustainable is that and um and will this cause tensions in his administration between people who are new onto the scene and people who have been involved in politics for a long time and are used to things being run a certain way. So I think it will be very interesting to see how the administration is run and, and how, and how, what this, and if this ends up being a rift or if this ends up having some level of synergy to it. Um,
0: now, Obviously, these nominees have to be confirmed by the United States Senate. We know there are those two Georgia seats, as mentioned, um, that are up on January 5th. There's always the shot. uh, There's a very good shot Democrats could win both of those, and then they could get the United States Senate. But there's also a good shot Republicans could win both of those races. Uh, If Republicans do win uh, both races in Georgia— um in which case there would be a republican senate or if they win just one of them which would still give them a majority um how is biden going to navigate confirming uh some of his picks with uh, a republican senate uh because some some nominees like Nira Tandon uh Xavier Bardez um and uh and uh Marsha Fudge have already received some criticism uh, from the right for being, uh, according to some Republican figures, too partisan left. Uh, how is he going to navigate uh, that in a Republican Senate if Republicans do keep the Senate in your mind?
1: Well, I, I think that, um, that, that this is a this is a bigger question about the future of the Republican Party. Um, you know, after. After, um, after January 20th. Um, and it, it really will, and we don't really have an answer to how we're going to navigate maybe the more traditional Republican Party establishment and people who are brought into the party or were re-energized in the party through Donald Trump. Um, and we might really see a battle for the soul of, of the Republican Party between these two. And um, looking at, at the Senate and, you know, to some degree at the House of Representatives, there is a potential for this conflict to to play out in, in both um, in both of those institutions. So I think that this is a is a bigger topic of, you know, is the Republican Party going to face a crisis of identity after you have the the void that Donald Trump will have left, um, or is he going to? continue to be engaged in politics and, you know, contemplate getting back into it? And what will that look like? So I think that moving ahead, you know, we're kind of going into a little bit of uncharted territory, and I'm not sure how, um, how Biden should, should navigate that, or I don't even know how dim- I, I don't think that even Republicans might have a question of how to navigate that. So it'll be, I think it'll be, for for people who are interested in watching politics, it'll be very um, interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Now, do you think some of the more establishment, moderate Republicans could play along with Biden and maybe say, okay, for the sake of bipartisanship, I'll I'll vote for your nominees? Or do you think they'll toe the traditional Republican line and say, no, these people are not. Uh, the type of people I want in any presidential cabinet, I'm not going to, to vote for them. Um, and if that's the case, um, do you think that leads to more gridlock in terms of, uh, Biden, uh, wanting to get people confirmed if Republicans keep the Senate?
1: I, you know, I don't really have that, that, you know, I can make predictions, but I don't really have a strong sense of that. I I think that there are other people who would have a better sense and who are really, really strong Congress watchers. But as I, you know, as I'm engaging with people and talking to them about their, their politics, it's clear that there are quite a few Republicans who are clear that while they're completely against the, the democratic agenda they're also wanting to, to move forward and maybe return to more of a politics as usual. Um, and how that will play out, I, I, simply, I simply don't know. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, how are we going to deal with, with gridlock? I mean, traditionally, you know, as I say, politics as usual, I mean, that was riddled with, grid life, with gridlock. And what we've seen now is that we've seen parties because they're riddled with gridlock have you know have these very diverse voices coming out within the parties um that that would allow you know voices such as bernie sanders and maybe some more of the progressive voices to have such a strong impact on the democratic side and even allow a candidate like donald trump who would never run for political office to rise up within the republican party so I think that, um, I think that we'll see a lot of uh, tension within the parties, and within the and within the, the politicians of these parties about what they want their party to look like, and how and um, it'll be interesting to see how they adapt to a post-Trump uh, America, or if or if Trump will come back. Um, yeah, you know, I say a post-Trump America, but it's very possible that, that he, he won't he won't leave um, he won't leave that uh, the, the political um, the political atmosphere. So that it will be. Um, I would love to make predictions, but I, I feel like well, 2020 was an interesting year that defied expectations, and 2021 may be the exact same.
0: Uh well let's uh speaking of Donald Trump, his children could be potentially uh looking at the United States Senate uh in two years. Come twenty twenty two, come the midterms. Uh right now there have been some reports uh that Donald Trump Jr., the son of Donald Trump, the eldest son of Donald Trump, uh could uh be looking at at a run for uh, U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania in 2022, uh, in 2022, in, uh, incumbent Republican Senator um, incumbent Republican Senator uh, Pat Toomey will be retiring, uh, which makes this already competitive race even more competitive, as it will be an open uh, seat uh, in a. Uh, uh, in a state that Joe Biden carried. Uh, also a state I should note that uh, was carried by uh Donald Trump t- uh, t- uh four years earlier. Uh, both narrowly, both narrowly, both times. So it will be competitive. Um, uh, in Florida, Marco Rubio is set to run again. Uh, for uh, the Senate, and he could be a contender in 2024 for the presidency once again, but he may have to face some challenge uh, from uh, a fellow Republican, that being Ivanka Trump. Some recent reports saying that the president's daughter could be uh, uh, preparing to primary Rubio in 2022. Uh, But right now uh, the one uh, Trump relative uh, who seems to have taken the most steps uh, towards a run is Laura Trump, the president's daughter-in-law. Reportedly, Laura Trump is already taking the steps to file uh, to run in the North Carolina Senate race. Uh, Right now, Richard Burr uh, will be retiring in 2022 in a state Donald Trump narrowly carried um making that race uh all the more competitive um right now it is looking like that will be a competitive race uh which could uh, which uh, which republicans may need to defend it looks like Laura Trump is taking the steps uh to run there uh what are your thoughts on some of Trump's children uh and his daughter-in-law preparing to potentially run in key battleground Senate races in two thousand and twenty two
1: Well, I think that um, even though you do see some American political dynasties, uh, I think that uh, Americans have shown that we're not, while, while we we are interested in some of that, we're not too keen on it on a mass scale. I mean, Jeb Bush's campaign, you know, never, it didn't really go anywhere in 2016 during the Republican primaries. Um, And so I I think that, you know, I think that looking into it, and, you know, of course, that that is their right to do that. Um, Do I think that we're going to have, you know, you know, you know, senators en masse all with the last name of Trump, you know, I think that uh, we're a little bit wary in the United States of these kind of these, uh, you know, political dynasties. Um, So I think that um, so moving ahead, I I think that um, that probably the name will continue to have a certain effect moving forward. But there will be there. You know, there will eventually be a
0: ceiling for that. All right. Well, moving on. So inauguration day is coming up on January twentieth, um, but it could look uh, a lot more differently. Uh, right now it's looking like this will be a much smaller uh inauguration, obviously because of COVID nineteen concerns. Uh, typically in past years we've seen uh large uh crowds of people come to inaugurate to the inauguration. And we've seen a number of people travel uh, from state to state to Washington, D.C., to witness the inauguration. Uh, Right now, it uh, appears as though uh, the Joe Biden campaign is uh, encouraging people not to do that, but instead to stay home uh, and watch the inauguration on television. Um, What are your thoughts on the inauguration looking different this year?
1: Um, I think that it. I think that it also shows the differences that we're seeing in in, in the country, right? Um, it's a way that you would see mass rallies uh, for Donald Trump and for um, and Joe Biden to be to really focus on you know smaller gatherings. Um, I think that uh, you know I think that we are running out of patience uh, for you know a COVID nineteen. And I think that people will want to to start meeting and expressing their political opinions in mass once again. And um, and you know the the question is, is is how can can they do that? I I don't think that watching something on on your computer is nearly as invigorating as as experiencing it and living it. And unfortunately, I think that that's something that has happened in, in 2020. Um, basically politics has gone all virtual. Um, and there's a, uh, certainly a great deal of separation. And I think that that's one of the things that makes, uh, the, the Trump supporters feel, feel that uh, that loss all the more deeply because they, they were getting out there and they were, were campaigning and way, you know going on their boat uh, parades and their their truck parades. And really, they, they, they went virtual in a certain way, but they also kept it very much and you know like mom and pop politics, you know going around and driving around and showing their support. Um and I think that moving forward, I think that virtual politics may while it, it makes sense in a digital digital age, it does lead to a, a great deal of separation between a person and their um, and the political f- figures that they associate with and also with with government in general. Um, so I hope that that this is not a trend that continues. I hope that politics will will become something, once again, that people get engaged with um, and that they show up to things and that they're involved physically because that does make a big difference. And, um, and I think it probably makes a big difference for the candidates as well.
0: All right. Um, and uh, I want to move on to the next story about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, there has been some controversy amongst some as she was recently tossed up uh, for a role on the Energy uh, Committee. Um, this has led to a number uh, of controversy. Many progressives have uh, called foul on this. Uh, many who are not fans of the Congresswoman uh, have been celebrating. Uh, what are your thoughts on this?
1: well i think that she has um i mean she is, has a very strong following um not just in her in her home district i mean she's she's become a political force in her own right um and moving forward you know that that will bring with it its own great deal of pressure um i think that um for her, I um yeah, I think that you know with, the, with these committees and such, I mean it, each one of them comes with its own you know levels of rights and responsibilities. Um, so, may I think that regardless of what what she what she ends up doing, she'll likely be making news regardless. So, um, so whether it's in this or in something else, um, she's the type of political figure that she will manage to find herself in the spotlight. And um, so I, you know, if she might have a setback here, but she'll, I think that she'll still continue on her political trajectory regardless.
0: All right. Um, and uh, one more story. So Hunter Biden is uh, currently being investigated by the Justice Department. Um, there's been a lot of controversy about this. Many people have said this is politically motivated. Other people have said this is warranted. Um, right now, there's uh, been a decent amount of talk about whether Joe Biden will pick somebody who uh, will uh, ultimately um uh, as Attorney General, who will ultimately look into uh, the scandal, um, uh, or, or will try to shut it down potentially, uh, Biden has said that he has not uh, talked to any uh, nominee, or, you know, potential candidates for Attorney General about that. Um, what are your thoughts on the investigation being reopened?
1: Well, I, I I have kind of two thoughts. The first is that I think that it's problematic if we're seeing people who who uh, run for president and become president and their entire family finding themselves in investigations and questions, by, from media and the general public. Um, I think that this is just problematic in general, especially if the, if if they end up being innocent at the end of the day. I mean, we saw a lot of. Uh, of this happening with uh, with talks of Russia and uh, Trump's sons um, in after he um, won the, the election, and I think that this will be essentially a disincentive for qualified people to run for office in, in the future. I mean, nobody wants to put their family through through this, especially if allegations are false. And so I think that what But on a broad spectrum, I mean, basically, it makes people question whether or not politics is something that they can be involved in or something that they even want to be involved in. And I think that just in general, we need to be working towards a political environment where where people who, who are capable individuals who wish to become public servants would feel comfortable doing so. Um, so, so that's maybe not so much related to, to Hunter Biden specifically, but just to, uh, politics in general. And I, I, hope that this isn't a trend that, that continues because, um, because a lot of capable people will decide not to, to get involved in politics because of that. Um, that being said, um, you know, if Hunter Biden is indeed, um, guilty of some of the things, or if he's, uh. Or if he's, or if there are questions in regards to some of his uh, ethic, uh, and his ethics in regard to his uh, past businesses, this is this is indeed problematic, um, and um, and I think that um, that Americans, especially, I know that this is a topic that has questioned a great deal of conservatives, and to ease their minds, I do believe that it probably should be looked into. Um, and if he ends up being innocent, then 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 that should relieve quite a few people's minds. Um, but just looking ahead, I guess the biggest question that we're faced with is that if places of political power are just are 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 basically ways of uh, I guess I don't want to use the word nepotism. It's too strong of a word, but. You know, I mean, we need to hold our political figures and, and, our, and their families to high standards. Um, of course, maybe sometimes we set them to too high of standards. But moving forward, I think that, um, that I mean, political families need to realize that Amer- the American people do want to hold them accountable. Um, to certain standards and certain uh, business standards as well. And I think that that should be, you know, I think that that should be understood just in general. Um, you know, I mean, we don't want to have a country uh, of corruption. We don't want to have a country where people are, are using their positions of power or their families' positions of power to take advantage.
0: All right, Uh, Emily Conrad, she's the author of the book, The Faithless, The Untold Story of the Electoral College. You can buy it now on the Amazon store. Uh, Emily, thank you again for joining me.
1: Thanks, and I hope that you have a Merry
0: Christmas. You as well. Uh, Before you go, do you want to tell people where you can be found on social media?
1: Yes, for sure. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram um, at Emily C. Conrad. And I also have a Facebook page for my book, which is called The Faithless Book.
0: All right. Thank you. And everybody listening, have a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, uh, whatever you choose to celebrate.